This morning we're going to move from the terrifying scene in the temple to a quiet conversation at night. And so the mood of the passage is going to change dramatically very quickly for us. Uh, This morning we will read, we'll pick up the very end of chapter 2 in John's Gospel, and we'll read just the first eight verses of Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus. It's a story many of you know well. Uh, We'll actually spend a couple of weeks in this conversation. We're going to focus on one piece of it this morning, and we will circle back uh, to focus on the essential faith next week. This morning we're going to focus on the essential change that Jesus says is needed. Little Christians, as we go through this passage, uh, reading it, and as you listen to the sermon this morning, I want you to be careful to notice there is something Jesus says that you need that everyone needs, that we cannot do for ourselves. There is something you need you can't do for yourself. I want you to see if you can answer by the end of the passage and the end of the sermon, what needs to happen to you and who does it? This is the good news of Jesus, the Savior who changes us. In John chapter 2, verse 23, through the first eight verses of chapter 3. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people, and he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, This man came to Jesus by night, and he said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs, the signs that you do, unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Join me as we pray. Lord Jesus, you have been kind to us through the work of your Spirit. You are the one who brings life to dead hearts. You are the one who changes us internally. You give us what we need and that we cannot do for ourselves. Jesus, we ask that you would be kind to us in our midst. We are sure there are some among us who listen to these words, who worship with us, who sing our songs, who rejoice with us. And we know that the motions of worship are not enough. You are the one who brings those motions to life with the work of your Spirit. And so if there are any among us who have not been made alive by your Spirit before, who have not felt its rushing wind, its animating power, would you, in your grace... 
by your Holy Spirit, bring life. We ask that you do these things for your glory and for our praise and our great rejoicing to see life spring up unexpectedly. We ask all these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Last week I said to you towards the end of my sermon that Jesus is the perfect and perpetual reformer of His church. And last week we got to see reformation in a very uncomfortable scene as He cleansed the temple. This week's passage moves us farther into His work of reformation actually. And here we get to see Jesus as the perfect and perpetual reformer, not just of the church, but of people. So last week we got to see him cleaning worship. And this week we get to see him talking about what it takes to clean a worshiper. Last week we saw Jesus address external forms and practices. And this week in his discussion with Nicodemus, John gives us a glimpse at what's needed in the internal secret work of the Spirit. The change that Jesus says we need in our essential nature, in our heart, in places that can't be seen, in places that can't be driven out and shaped, like we saw last week in the temple. And so John gives us a transition in verses 23 through 25. I put it with this passage for a reason. We tend to read these like small anecdotes. It's just incidental that Jesus stayed in Jerusalem and some people believed in him and he didn't entrust himself to them. But this is more than just a chronological transition. John is setting us up for the Nicodemus story and he does it, he does it beautifully. John is a much better storyteller than I am. He's a much better storyteller than most of us. John tells the story with all the beauty of Jesus' gospel, all the complexity of who Jesus is and what he does. And he does it with very simple layers, and he just stacks them up, and you have to peel them off and look underneath them one at a time. So when you read through those first few verses, he was in Jerusalem, people believed in his name, but he didn't entrust himself to them. He moves to explain why. It's because Jesus knows everything about humanity. If we could paraphrase it, we might say Jesus is the best anthropologist there has ever been. He knows everything about all people. He knows everything about humanity and its essence. He knows it exhaustively. He knows us well, not just factually, but intimately. Jesus knows us in the theater very well. Jesus knows me, and he knows you better than you know yourself. And John moves from these abstract statements about Jesus knowing everything about mankind to a short story about one man in particular. So you should read the verses this way. Jesus didn't entrust himself to them because he knows everything about everyone. Every person on earth has been perfectly known and will be perfectly known by Jesus. All that they are, all that they need all that he can and will do for some. So here's the story of one. Here's the story of one person. And what we get in John 3 is the perfect example to play out what Jesus knows we need. 
And so he starts off. Now there was this one man. He was a Pharisee. He was a ruler of the Jews. And as Jesus makes his case that everyone needs something they can't do for themselves, he picks an example. And John highlights it by telling us this story. John picks an example of a man who, religiously speaking, had everything. He doesn't bring up one of the exceptions for us. He brings up Nicodemus. Nicodemus was extraordinarily moral. But Jesus knows what lives inside of him. And Nicodemus was extraordinarily conservative. It wasn't that he was liberal theologically or socially or politically. He was conservative in all of those realms. And Jesus knows what lives inside of him. It wasn't a problem of education. It's not one of knowledge. Nicodemus is extraordinarily educated. Jesus knows what lives inside of him. And it's not that Nicodemus isn't pious. Nicodemus is held out for us as the most religious guy you can imagine. And Jesus knows what lives inside of Nicodemus. He's observant of all the practices, and he's known for it. He's prominent. His reputation is impeccable as a member of the Pharisees, and not just a member, one of their rulers. And so if you were reading this gospel for the first time, if you were going to say, yeah, but there are exceptions to this rule. Jesus knows what lives in the hearts of mankind, every woman, man, and child. But there are some good people out there. Nicodemus is the guy you would imagine to try and defend your case. You would imagine Nicodemus, moral and conservative and educated and religious and observant and prominent. And when he comes to Jesus, Jesus addresses him the way he needs to address all of us. So Nicodemus comes to him at night. And he addresses him somewhat respectfully. He says, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God. Don't get too hung up on that. There's every chance that that actually is respectful. And he's coming at night because he has started to believe in Jesus. He started to be intrigued by Jesus. And he doesn't want word getting out. But you see this kind of address from Pharisees, other places in the Gospels when they mean to trap Jesus. Jesus, we know that you're a teacher from God. Tell us and settle this for us. Should we pay taxes to Caesar? So at the beginning of the story, we know who Nicodemus is. We're not entirely sure how to take his approach to Jesus. And it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you don't know how to interpret Nicodemus because Jesus does. Jesus knows everything about all of humanity. Jesus knows everything about every person. Jesus knows everything about Nicodemus. Even deep down. Even in secret and hidden places. And so Jesus answers him by stirring up a controversy with him. He tells him he's going to have to be born again if he's ever going to see the kingdom of God. 
Nicodemus asks him a question, and he turns back to him and says, you have to be born again of water and of spirit if you're going to enter the kingdom of God. And if ever anyone had the right, humanly speaking, to argue against this kind of threshold, this kind of requirement from Jesus, it would be Nicodemus. And Jesus tells him plainly, you need this. Everyone needs this. And the funny piece is, Jesus takes all that Nicodemus is, all of his morality, all of his piety, all of his education, all of his observance, all of his reputation, and he doesn't tell him to change any of it. I said in the opening that we are moving from Jesus reforming the external practice of his people to changing the inner secret essential nature of his people. And that's what we get here. Jesus doesn't change any of the external pieces. He doesn't argue against them. He doesn't tell, them, tell him that they are illegitimate. He looks at all that Nicodemus is, and he doesn't tell him to change anything. He just says, you need to be radically changed. You don't need to stop being pious. You don't need to stop being religious. You don't need to uneducate yourself. You don't need a different degree. You don't need to change your morality. But the Spirit has to invade you and change you. Not just changing things about you, actually changing what you are. I listened to another pastor's sermon on this passage about a week and a half ago. And the example he gave was this, trying to explain the dichotomy between Jesus not addressing any of the externals and only addressing the internal power was the word he used, the power by which Nicodemus operated. The example he gave was when he and his wife were furnishing a home, they went and bought all new appliances. And they were great appliances. They got top-of-the-line stuff. They put them in their kitchen. They installed everything. They took the protective wrappings off. And nothing happened with any of them. The fridge was warm. The dishwasher wouldn't wash. The oven wouldn't turn on. The microwave, no matter what you did, just sat there dark and cold. And the problem was, in putting them in, when we plugged one of them in, he had tripped a breaker. The appliances weren't the problem. The appliances didn't need to be changed. In fact, they wanted to keep the appliances, but they had to turn the power on. And this pastor went on, I think, very helpfully to say, Jesus doesn't change any of Nicodemus' appliances, so to speak. He tells him the problem is not with the scriptures you read. The problem is not you're observing the law. The problem is that you do these things and the power's cut off. I was talking with William, our pianist, before the, before the worship service. And William, if I get this wrong, I apologize. Um, He was explaining to me the way he teaches people to improvise musically. I am not musical, so I'm going to take his word for it. Um, But he, he told me that one of the things they do is they work through 
sort of a rhythm and a pulse of chords that are familiar, and then you branch out. And the way he described it, he said there's almost, if I'm paraphrasing it correctly, there's almost a spiritual component to going through the mechanics and then all of a sudden finding a new home for that rhythm. And so Jesus comes to Nicodemus and he wants to teach him to improvise. He tells him the mechanics are fine. The things you're doing don't need to be addressed so much as there's no animation to it. The Spirit of God has not invaded and saturated and animated the things that you're doing. We saw last week very particular, that Jesus cares very much what we do. He does. It would be a lie for me to stand up here and tell you Jesus cares nothing for what you do. We watched him make a whip of cords caring about what people did. But in this passage, we see Jesus telling Nicodemus he has to change what we are. Yes, Jesus cares what we do. But the real work of His ministry, the real work of His grace by the animating, enlivening Spirit is to change what we are. And there are times that changing what we are will change some of the things we do and how we do them. But fundamentally, He is after changing what and who we are. And so he preaches this sermon to Nicodemus, and Nicodemus is absolutely confused. He's absolutely befuddled by everything that Jesus says. He makes him say it twice. He says, you have to be born again if you're going to even see the kingdom of God. And the real irony of that statement, by the way, is that Jesus referred to himself in other gospel accounts as the kingdom of God in your midst. The kingdom of God has come among you. And so you can almost hear the sly smile in his voice when he tells Nicodemus, if you're going to recognize the kingdom when it's standing in front of your face at night, talking to you and answering your questions, you're going to need the work of the Spirit. Without that, you could stand in front of the kingdom of God in your presence, answering your questions at night, and have no clue that the kingdom of God has come into your midst. And the tragedy of the beginning of the scene is that that's exactly what's going on for Nicodemus. He has no idea he's standing in the presence of the kingdom of God come down incarnate and in his midst. And so Jesus addresses him and explains to him that the problem is essentially he's stillborn. Yes, you've been born, but you're not truly alive. You have not been made alive by the Spirit. And Nicodemus gives further evidence of it by not understanding any of it, by not rejoicing to hear good news preached to him. And so Nicodemus questions him. And Jesus continues to answer in ways that are hidden from him because he's not been made alive yet. And I told you that John tells stories with beautiful layers. I don't think those are the inventions of John. I think John, as a gospel writer, is the one who best reflects 
the way that Jesus would layer things carefully, almost sneakily, craftily. And so all through the passage you have this word play between wind and spirit. You have that in English. In Greek it's exactly the same word all the way through. And so when Jesus explains all of this to him, he says, unless one is born of water and of pneuma, he can't enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of pneuma is pneuma. Then he says, the pneuma blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, and you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So is it with everyone who's born of the pneuma. You have the advantage in an English translation of having spirit capitalized and the word translated spirit or wind. But all the way through, there's this double entendre in everything Jesus says. Jesus is talking to Nicodemus with a long pun, and Nicodemus never gets it. The Spirit of God is described here like the wind, and the wording is exactly the same, back and forth between the two. And he tells him, you can't see it. You can only hear the sound of it. You can only hear its effects. But you never get a clear sight of it. And Jesus says it to him in a way that's very ironic. He says it to him in a way that makes it difficult for Nicodemus to see. He can just hear the rustlings of it. He can just catch the rustlings of what Jesus might mean in his words. But theologically, the word play is beautiful for us. This is not just Jesus being clever. This is not Jesus playing a practical joke on Nicodemus. This is Jesus explaining the ministry of God's Holy Spirit with all of the mystery and enigma that Reformed Christians hate. We like certainty. We like diagrams. We like outlines. We want Jesus to give us a five-point systematic theology to explain when and where and how and why the Spirit moves the way He does. What we want is the weather channel. Spiritually speaking, we want to turn it on and find out when the cold front is coming and how the wind will move and what the jet stream looks like. We want to be able to pull out our phone and see that the wind will be coming out of the north at 17 miles an hour eight days from now. But Jesus explains it to him with all the mystery and all the beauty and all the sovereignty of the Spirit. The Spirit blows in like the wind, and you have no control over it. In fact, you can't see the wind. This is still true, by the way, no matter how much weather channel you watch. You cannot actually see the wind. You can hear it. You can hear it as it blows through leaves and you hear them rustle. You can see the effects of it when branches sway in the wind like they have over the last couple of days. When the cold front moved in to Dallas, thankfully, there was a lot of wind, but you didn't see the wind. You just saw its effects. You just felt what the wind brought with it. You felt what the wind changed. You saw the things that the wind moved, but you never saw the wind itself. And Jesus tells Nicodemus, and he tells us, The beauty 
and the mystery of the sovereignty of God's Holy Spirit is that you don't get to see when and where He operates. You can only see His effects. So Jesus holds us out in front of Nicodemus, and at least to this point in the conversation, Nicodemus misses it. Nicodemus stays confused, but John tells us the story hoping that we won't stay confused. One of the things he wants you to know is the beauty of resting and trusting the sovereign movements of the Spirit that you cannot control, you cannot manipulate, you cannot predict, and you cannot see. And at the same time, you can hear the sound of it. You can witness the effects of it and rejoice that the Spirit actually has moved. One of the beauties of this story, and we'll see the rest of it next week, You never find out in this whole account in John 3 whether or not Nicodemus believes any of it. And you can't hear or see in this story whether or not the Spirit of God actually moves in him. You get no glimpse in this story of whether or not Nicodemus is born again. And it fits what Jesus has said. You can't see the wind. The Spirit will come in just like the wind and he will blow when and where and on whom enlivening and changing those He wills, those He chooses. And you won't be able to see it, Nicodemus. And as readers of John's Gospel, it's frustrating to us because one of the first questions we want to ask is, okay, so what happened? He told him all this great stuff. What happened to Nicodemus? You don't get to see it here. You don't get to see the wind move any more than Nicodemus did. The fact that you have... Words on a page inspired by this same Spirit doesn't mean you get told all of the effects right here. You're left dissatisfied. Your questions are left frustrated until we get to the very end of John's John's Gospel. You're left here wondering whether or not the wind of the Spirit actually blew through Nicodemus' heart and changed anything. And you have to wait until John 19 after the crucifixion, to find out that Nicodemus came back to find Jesus at night again. After the crucifixion, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus came secretly because they feared the Jews who rejected Jesus and who crucified Him. But they came this time not to ask questions, but because they loved Him. They came to get His body and to bury it and to prepare it for the grave And so you get to hear the rustling of the Spirit's wind in Nicodemus, but not until John 19. One of the pains of me needing to tell you that is I don't get to leave you with the same dissatisfaction and mystery that John leaves you here in this chapter. The movement of the Spirit is inner or internal and hidden and secret. And so John tells us the story that way. Jesus frustrates Nicodemus and John frustrates us. And the frustration is not supposed to chastise you. 
It is not Jesus and it's not John telling you. You demand too many answers. You want to know too much. It's them stretching you and exercising you, telling you, you need to learn to hope in the sovereign and mysterious blowing of the Spirit. The movement of the Spirit that cannot be seen, manipulated, predicted, or controlled. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound. You hear the effect of it, but you don't know where it comes from or where it's going until you get to see its effects. And it's like that with everyone who is born again by the Spirit. Every dead heart that's made alive, every unbelieving heart that's made to believe, every rebellious person made a worshiper, every hater of God turned into those who love and trust Him. It's just like the wind blowing with everyone When the early church read this passage, they saw very clearly what we should see in it. The promise of the sovereign spirit, the mysterious movement of the spirit, and at the same time, the beauty of the sign of baptism. We use language like this to talk about baptism often. One of the places we get it is from this story in John. Jesus answered him and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And so Jesus ties the Spirit to water. It's biblical imagery we're familiar with by this point. We've said it several times from the pulpit, and if you've read through Scripture or read any significant portion in the Old Testament, you know many times the imagery of water is used to talk about the Lord's Spirit coming and refreshing and saturating things that are parched and dying. It's invasive and uncontrollable like water. And it's cleansing. And so just as John told everyone in our first chapter, I am not the Christ. John the Baptist, sorry, not John the Evangelist. John the Baptist in the first chapter said, I am not the Christ, I am someone who comes ahead of him, and I baptize you with water, but the one who comes after me actually baptizes you with the real water of the Spirit. And so John will play this theme out through not just this chapter, but the next. And he talks about the living water that he offers to the woman at the well. Jesus is promising real water of refreshment, real baptism in the Spirit. And we come together to celebrate baptism here in the theater. We use physical, wet, dripping water. But we never place our hope in that water. We never say, this is good enough. We always pray. We always ask that the Lord would use this visible sign to celebrate real hope in His invisible work. We always have to put our trust in somewhere beyond a silver bowl on a pedestal. So Jesus is telling Nicodemus, you need baptism. And the early church saw it as Jesus saying, you need baptism. And I want you, when you hear us talk about baptism on the floor, say, you need baptism. 
But you need both the sign, the mark of discipleship, and you need the reality of God's Spirit invading a dead heart and making it alive. And when Jesus says this to Nicodemus, two things are in view. It has always been this way, and it's never been this way. When Jesus says, you need to be born again from above, when He says, you need the invasive, mysterious, and invisible work of God, it has always been that way. In fact, God has always, for the good of His people, tied it to a covenant sign. In Genesis 17, God gave Abraham and all of His people after the sign of circumcision. But in Deuteronomy 10, you read the words of the Lord to His people, circumcise your heart. The picture of cutting away something extra and dead is actually supposed to be a picture of what the Spirit does internally, invisibly, hidden and secret in your heart. Cutting away what's dead. So the Lord says to His people, circumcise your heart and no longer be stubborn. Don't rest just in the physical sign of circumcision. Wear it, rejoice in it, but be glad that your, your real hope is in the hidden work of the Spirit internally changing you, internally performing the surgery that you need. In that sense, it has always been this way. No one has ever believed in the Messiah. No one has ever come near and seen and entered the kingdom of God apart from this invisible work of the Spirit. Jesus is not saying, this is a new arrangement, Nicodemus. It starts now. Whatever you've done in the past, we've got new policies in place. I just got a memo the other day from the head office. From now on, you've got to be reborn. This work of the Spirit internally has always been needed, and that's the way he talks with Nicodemus. Do not marvel that I said to you, you have to be born again. Don't marvel, Nicodemus, because it's not new. We'll see that more in next week's passage when he goes on to explain, you're a teacher of the Jews, you're supposed to know all of this. You're familiar with the Old Testament Scriptures. It's taught plainly there, Nicodemus, you should know it. And in that sense, this need for rebirth is nothing new when Jesus preaches it to Nicodemus. And at the same time, when Jesus stands in front of Nicodemus, Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophetic promises that the Spirit would come in new fullness, with new, fuller, and richer ministry. Not that the Spirit had never ministered, but the prophets anticipate when the new covenant comes, when the new covenant comes in the flesh and stands in your midst and preaches good news to you and promises a giving of the Spirit, it will be newer and fuller and richer and deeper and abiding in a way that it has not been yet. So in passages like Ezekiel 36, the Lord promises His people, I will vindicate my holiness in you. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all of your uncleanness, and from your idols I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put in you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, Nicodemus. 
I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you, cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. The prophetic promises were always tied to this picture of the spirit coming and cleansing like water sprinkled or poured out on people who are parched and thirsty and dying for it. And so Jesus says to him, in one sense, this has always been the case. You have always needed this. Without this, you can't recognize the kingdom of God when it comes near you and you can't enter it. And at the same time, he holds out the good news to him. Now that I'm here, now that I bring the new covenant with me, I carry you all the way into my kingdom with the fullness of the Spirit's ministry in a way you've never enjoyed. And we'll see more next week as we look at the essential faith that Jesus tells Nicodemus is needed, the faith in himself, what it means to believe in Jesus, what it is that needs to be believed about him, what about him needs to be trusted and enjoyed and celebrated. But before we get to any of that, Jesus is telling not just Nicodemus, but all of us, You need this essential change. You need this internal, hidden, secret, invisible work of the Spirit. Or the rest of it's meaningless. All the catechism and all the motions are beautiful and wonderful things, but they have to be animated by the Spirit making your heart alive, or they're just motions. So Jesus is telling Nicodemus... And Jesus is telling all of us the hard but simultaneously good news that it is not enough to be born into a believing family. It is not enough to belong to a believing community. It is not enough to sing believing songs. You have to be born again. And if that's the case, don't shed all of those other things. If that's the case, those things are filled with the life the Spirit produces in you. Jesus is telling Nicodemus and Jesus is telling us our hope is in God moving by His Spirit to make dead, unbelieving, loveless hearts alive and faithful and resting and pervaded and filled with His love. This is the perfect end to last week's story. This is the perfect place for John to take us. As Jesus cleansed the temple... And yes, reformed external practices. He comes right back around and tells us plainly the motions of worship, no matter how pure, are never enough. The good news is that Jesus washes and animates his church. He cleanses us as the temple of his spirit by the hidden and invasive work of his sovereign spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are kind to us, not just in the external proclamation of your gospel, not just in words that hit our ears, but you are kind to us by invading us and working on us internally by your Spirit. You have given us Jesus the Son to be all the Savior that we need and the sad tragedy of who we are 
of what you know us to be in our frailty and weakness after the fall is that our hearts are dead on our own. We can't see it. We can't hear it. We can't rejoice in any of the goodness that Jesus brings to us in his life, in the sacrifice of his cross or his victorious rising. If it's not for the work of your spirit, and while it frustrates us that we can't control or manipulate or predict the spirit, there is a real beauty and simplicity that brings us to the end of ourselves as we rest in your goodness to us, as we rest in your sovereignty to send the Spirit to blow through and animate and bring to life those whom you have chosen for yourself. We ask that you let us see the effects of it. Let us see the effects in our lives, in our homes, in our friendships, in our marriages. Let us see the effects of the enlivening spirit in our worship, in the ways that we sing the songs, in the ways that we celebrate in the liturgy you've given us. Let us hear your word and rejoice. Would you do these things for us by your sovereign spirit? Would you do these things among those who worship with us and have not yet been brought to life by your Spirit. Do it for the glory of your grace. Do it for the glory of your Son, and let us rejoice to see the effects of it, to rejoice in those made alive. By your Spirit who makes us new and gives us new birth, we ask that you do these things for us in our midst. Let us celebrate them. And we ask that you would comfort us and assure us as we come to the table, as we see in the sacrament of bread and wine, the beauty of your gospel. Do these things for us, we pray, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.